Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sama sambuddhasa Bhutang tamang sankhang namasami Whatever arises passes away. This is the last talk of the Rains Retreat of 1999. Just a few days ago, okay, the first talk of the Rains Retreat. Now it's almost over. That is the, the nature of all conditioned things to rise and fall. <coughs> For some people that gives rise to a great deal of fear as if they've got no place to hold on to, as if even the ground beneath them is moving, is disintegrating, so there's no place to sit. And indeed, that is the nature of our lives. At, fear, at first, we can fear the seeing of anicca, but after a while, when we understand the Dhamma, the anicca becomes a great comfort to us a great tool which we can use to bear with the, the moods of life. There are times when you will be happy, there will be times when you are confused, there are times when you are healthy, there are times when you are sad and sick. These are the nature of life, to rise and fall. Once a person understands the rise and fall of all phenomena, then experiencing the, the worst which human life can give you does not make you move. You know it's just something passing. Just like the wind passes the face. You don't know where that wind comes from. You can't tell where the wind is going. All you know is the wind as it's passing you. You don't know when that wind is going to end. Whether it's going to get stronger or weaker is beyond your ability to discern. In the same way that all feelings which arise in the mind, all feelings which impinge upon the body, all of these, they arise and pass away, you never know where they're coming from, when they will go, even though you try as best you can in your life to try and control these feelings, to try and only get pleasant feelings and to ward off the painful ones, you're all old enough now, have enough experience to have discovered you cannot control these Vedanas. They're beyond you. They just come when they want to. And they just disappear when they want to. We're subject to nature rather than to control. <coughs> and seeing this, seeing as it said in that sutta we just chanted, a fire sermon, that all the sensory experience is on fire like this. Like fire, flames, licking, going big and then growing small, going out and then flaring up again. That is the nature of our experience. If you have any sickness, you know the nature of the sickness to die down, then flare up again, then die down again and flare up again. Those who have constant sickness, it's just the same as all human beings have constant sickness. It's just a matter of degree, that's all. And there's the sickness of the mind. 
There are times when the mind is healthy and everything looks so wonderful and beautiful. There are times when you're depressed and fed up and you want to go somewhere else. This is just the nature of the mind, that's all, just the winds blowing through it. All the Kubo Ajahn said, don't follow those moods. Stand your ground and just be like the unshakable rock where the winds, they can blow as hard as they can but they don't even make the rock, the great mountain, tremble. This is a sign of someone who understands the Dhamma, someone who doesn't tremble, who doesn't get blown around, a person who is light. They haven't got a foundation in the Dhamma, no roots, they just blow around all over the place, from place to place, situation to situation. But when you have your roots like a mountain, stuck in the Dhamma, <coughs> then you don't get moved by the different rising and falling of phenomena in the world. To be able to see those rising and falling phenomena is just that, just things which come and go. We have to actually look at this thing which we call experience. But not just the experience, we have to look at the experiencer as well. There's so often that human beings and Buddhists especially, some Buddhists, all they <coughs> want to observe is the content of the screen rather than the screen itself. All they want to, to see and to look at is, is something out there rather than inside. We all understand because it's common to all philosophies and religions which have a, a mystic internal bent that we have to look inside. We don't go inside enough, we stop short of the goal. The whole idea of this investigation is to go deeper and deeper and deeper inside. Go to the very core of this which we call phenomena, the world, self, God, existence or whatever. Go to the very core. And that core only comes from going within, inner, inner, more inside, more deep. Human beings, instead of going inside, going in, they go on, further on, to something else in the future. They step ahead of themselves rather than step inside of themselves. And this is why that human beings, even meditators, very often don't get the, the pure wisdom of the Dhamma. That Dhamma lies right in the very moment, in the heart, in the, in the very centre of all this. However, that very often, just like the, the apple, we just stop at its skin and think that's all there is. We don't go deeper into its very core and see there's nothing there. And go into the core of things, the screen, the, <coughs> the knower, the doer, is so important to be able to liberate yourself from the illusion of this passing and fading away of phenomena. It's something which it's appearing on a solid, permanent screen. As if that you are always there watching all of these things come and go. But you don't come and go. You're always there. That is the illusion which creates suffering in that world which you inhabit. This is why that I've been teaching throughout this Rains Retreat to develop the mind in such powerful states of samadhi where you can hold the mind on one thing 
courageously, firmly, without shaking, without uh, uh, wavering. What you want to see is this thing we call experience itself. And to be able to get deep into that, you do need the ability to sustain your attention on something very, very subtle, something very, very small, fine, refined, consciousness. So often, (coughs) the ordinary experience of life just goes too fast. So fast that we cannot really discern its nature. It's like going through life in a fast car. When we look out the window, we can see just flashes of scenery as we go past. We may go through a town, but we cannot really read the signposts or read the, what's the name of the shops. We go too fast. As we slow down, we can get more information. If you travel on a bicycle, you can see much more. If you walk, you can see even greater detail. But if you stand still, as you watch the scenery around you, just stand still, then you find you see the very most. And as you stand still and watch any part of nature, if you can sustain your attention on any part of nature long enough, the nature opens out to you and reveals its secrets. Whether that's watching a leaf on a tree, whether that's watching the moon in the sky, whether it's watching the finger of your hand, whatever it is, if you can sustain your attention, unmoving, without comment, silent, still, you'll find the object in front of the mind will open its secrets up to you. You'll see much more in there than you've ever seen before. It's a simile which I've used before, the thousand petal lotus. It's a Tibetan simile, just to show that every now and again I am a little bit ecumenical. Thousand petal lotus, the lotus closes up at night time. When the sun's rays hit that lotus, it starts to open petal by petal. As long as the sun is heating that petal, it will start to open up. You can imagine how long the sun has to sustain its attention on the lotus to start to have the innermost petals open up. The sun stands for samadhi, sustaining its attention on this thing which we call experience, me, the world this lotus. As you sustain your attention on this thing, the outermost petals open up, revealing the inner petals. You will notice as as you contemplate in this way, silently holding your attention without moving, that all the old labels disappear. All the old ideas which you had about that thing in front of you, that's all outermost labels. They all start to disappear. When you get to the innermost labels, you start to see things you've never seen before. Experiences which don't have labels, 
which are beyond your learned perception. Most of our perception is just repeating what we already know. What we're told at school, cow, dog, policeman, mummy, car. All these labels which we're taught to attach to these objects in the world. All these labels which we're taught to attach to the objects of the mind. Thought, feeling, consciousness, self. All these are just that much learned perceptions. As we sustain our attention on the mind, all those learned labels, they're just like the outermost petals of the lotus. They open and we know that there's more to this. There's a deeper reality, a reality which is certainly beyond words. And that <coughs> lotus, if we can keep on sustaining its attention, sustaining attention on this thing which we call the mind, experience, the moment, whatever you wish to call it, without moving, the innermost petals start to manifest. And then finally, the last, the thousandth petal, the innermost of the innermost, opens up and reveals what they call the, the, the jewel in the heart of the lotus. The beautiful jewel of Dhamma which is emptiness. Nothing there. In Thai, Wang. Nothing. Well, not what you expect in the heart of a lotus, but that's what's there. The emptiness of all phenomena. Once you see that, it gives you a great shock. In the very centre of all things is a great space of nothingness of emptiness and all around is these fabrications we call Sankara and it's only these fabrications which surround this empty core of nothingness it's those fabrications which we take to be real which we take to be me, which we take to be mine, which we take to be a self, which we take to be a monastery, a place, an abbot, an anagarika all of these things are what deludes us it's hard to go that deep inside the mind. There comes a time when we get to an innermost petal, not the very innermost. And we say that's enough. Because you go deeper and deeper into that lotus, the petals are more and more golden, more and more beautiful, more and more brilliant. They're delightful, those innermost petals. And sometimes you come to a most beautiful petal and think that's it, this must be it, so beautiful, so inspiring, so wonderful. You think, ah, that's the Dhamma. So only in the emptiness, the nothingness, can there be any end. Ajahn Chah always used to like to find the end of things. Not things which create more problems, more things to do, but find something which stops everything which finishes the work, which ends the burden. Just as they say when a person becomes enlightened, kina jati, birth is finished. Wusitang brahmacharyang, the holy life finished. Naparang itatayati, no more 
of all this? Have you had enough of all this yet? Those of you who had lots of suffering in the Rains Retreat, join the club. Everyone has had suffering in this Rains Retreat. Join the club, this is suffering. What we're trying to do is to find that which ends all this suffering. So we finish with this holy life business. We end it. <coughs> this is where it's ended. To see the core of nothingness within. Imagine what that might be like when you know because you've seen to the very depth of all things there's nothing there. That which you've taken to be consciousness that which knows you find it's completely empty. The Buddha called it a magician's trick. The magician who makes you think that there's something solid in this consciousness, but it's just things arising, passing away, that's all there is there. But that which knows is just an empty process. At its very core there's a big hole. It's just nothing. Rising and falling according to the energy of karma. That's all it does. Because it is empty, it can stop. If there was something there, it will be endless. There is a, a basic law of physics, the law of conservation of energy. The thing which has energy, it cannot just disappear. It just can change into other forms of energy. It can mutate as it changes through the whole of samsara. But if there's nothing there, if it's empty of energy, empty of anything, only then can it stop, can it end, can it all be finished with. To see that core of consciousness to be empty is liberating. It means that whether you know happiness or you know suffering, whether you know confusion or you know clarity, whether you know whatever, you realise that this is just the empty consciousness, that's all, playing a game with you. Thinking that this is real. When you can actually see the emptiness of consciousness, it's like finally seeing the television on which all of this drama of life is carried out seeing the television itself disappear. I like to use that simile of televisions. Imagine six televisions in a line. One is called sight, one is called sound, one is called smell, one is called taste, touch, and the other one is mind. Each of these televisions, and they're not all on at the same time. There's one and then another, and then another, and then another, flicking into existence. It's very easy to see the content on the screens, and see the content rise and fall. But the way to become enlightened is not to see the content on the screen rise and fall, but to see the screen itself, the whole television, the whole shebang, 
rise and fall, to see the whole television set come into existence and then completely disappear. It's one of the great benefits of attaining jhanas. As soon as you've got into a jhana, five televisions have completely vanished. Not just popped out of existence for a moment, but popped out of existence for many hours. It's not as if there's nothing on the screen. There's just no screen anymore. There is no sight. There is no sound. Not even any ear. The body's gone. There's no smell. There's no taste. There's no touch because there's no body when you're in a jhana. It's got pure mental consciousness. That's why you can't hear. That's why you can sit for long periods of time because the, the knees don't ache, the back doesn't ache, the nose doesn't itch because it's got hay fever. You've completely left that world. Five televisions disappeared. You've just got this mind left. You can, as it were, get stuck there because some people with weak wisdom will think, well, that's it, the mind is the ultimate television set. That doesn't disappear. You can either use influence or you can take those jhanas deeper and deeper and see as it were just parts of that last television set hacked away. From first jhana to second jhana you hack away at half the television set and we tackle each other second, third or fourth jhana, you hack away a heap more of that television set, the piti sukha. You get into your rupas and you hack away more of that television until you get to Niroda and the whole last television set is gone. Consciousness has disappeared. That which knows has vanished. You come out of that experience, there's no way that you can miss the meaning, that which we taught, thought to be real, pervasive, stable, that which knows, is just a mirage, arised and gone away. Sometimes people get afraid when I talk like this, and that's to be expected, because I'm challenging the very heart of who you think you are challenging it to the very, very, very roots. But imagine, just imagine for a while what it would be like to have no self. To have no self means all of this happiness and suffering, this pain and pleasure, this delight and frustration which arises in the mind, it would not worry you anymore. Why would it concern you when there's no one there who owns this? Pain in the body, pleasure in the body, the delight in the place you're staying, or the frustration, the success or the failure. Why would you worry about it? You know these are just things which rise and fall, they're not yours, there's no one to blame, there's no one to praise. Praise and blame are worldly dumbers the Buddha said, they don't belong to anybody. They just belong to nature. Praise and blame are great to contemplate. When I was young, I always tried to avoid blame like the plague. And only seek praise. If I got blame, I thought there was something wrong with me. <coughs> and I was quite skillful in trying to please others. 
that even though I tried my very best, I still got blamed for things which I didn't do. But also I noticed, I got praised for things I didn't do as well. I never complained about that. When I got praised unfairly. And I got fed up when someone blamed me unfairly. After a while you give up praise and blame. Just really notice just how much of my early life was trying to please somebody. Whereas trying to please my parents or please my teachers at school or please my friends or please my girlfriend or please the first Ajahn Chah or please Ajahn Sumaita, the first teachers or please the committee or please the monks who are staying with me. I don't care if I please you or not. You've had a rotten range retreat, I don't care. <laughs> I don't try to please you. It's your fault. It's just worldly dumbness. Nothing to do with me. I take no responsibility. If you got enlightened, it's not my fault. It's praise and blame. That's all that is. Isn't it wonderful when you see this is no, not Ajahn Brahm giving the talk. They don't have to worry about what comes out. They don't have to worry about trying to uh, inspire people. It's just the play of Dhamma, that's all it is. What I'm trying to say is that when one realizes non-self, there's a great freedom which comes. The freedom from all that concern which causes you suffering. The Buddha said that when there's a self, there are things which belong to you. There's my reputation, there's what people think of me, there's my possessions, there's my body, there's my thoughts, my ideas, my views, there's my meditation. All of these things which begin with my, they happen when we have a self. Imagine that there's no self. When there's no self, there's no core. There is no me, there is no mine. Imagine what it's like to have no possessions. I don't just mean physical possessions. I don't mean just saying you've got no hut, you've got no robes, you've got no money, you've got no sugar, honey. I mean you've got no body. No arms, no head, no teeth. You have no thoughts. Thoughts are there, but they're not yours. You have no happiness. You have no suffering. Just happiness and suffering just come and go. But they're nothing to do with me. There's no one in here. Imagine what it's like to have nothing. To truly be without possessions. To have followed the path of renunciation far deeper than you first thought was possible. You don't just renounce worldly things. You renounce unworldly things, all things, anything. Throwing everything away until there's literally nothing left. Imagine when you have absolutely nothing. No body, no mind. No consciousness, it just belongs to nature. You give back the deeds of your life to its rightful owner. 
nature owns all this, not me. If you can do that, imagine how free you are. You have absolutely no worries, no concerns. Whatever happens in the world, nature looks after it. Happiness, suffering, calamity, confusion, whatever occurs, just the play of nature, that's all. That's why the Buddha said, whenever there is not a self, there's nothing belonging to a self, there's no mind. There's no mind, there's no craving anymore. Why do we want to try and grab onto things? To grab on to not just happiness, but we grab on to suffering as well. People are crazy. They grab on not just to praise, they grab on to blame. Someone tells you off and tells you how stupid you are. You grab on to that. I'm stupid. Why do they call me stupid? I'm not really stupid. You're just holding on to that. When there's pain in the body, I hurt. This, this is painful. Why are you holding on to that? You're just making yourself suffer. Craving is not just for pleasant things. Stupid people will crave for suffering. They just crave for anything. Just because they're into craving. It's like a, a, someone going into a shop. They decide they're going to buy something. If they like it or not, they'll buy even rubbish. That's what craving is like. You'll eat anything when you're hungry. You attach to anything when you're stupid. Craving, even suffering. And this is all because that deep inside of us we still think we are there. That if we want to do something, we want to get something, we want to own something. <coughs> the whole function of having a self, an ego, is to do, to, to, to uh, possess, and to have power over our possessions. Big egos in the world like to be prime ministers and presidents, kings and queens. They like to own so much and have power over everything. The extent of your ego is measured by the number of your possessions and the field of your power over others. Someone who has got no ego, has really got no self, doesn't exert control over others, doesn't exert power. It's interesting just in that perspective, remembering some of the great monks which I've known, arahats of the forest tradition, Sometimes that people thought they were fearsome because they'd always tell you what to do. They would control you. That's not the memory I have of them. They were just so soft and kind. They were freeing you, not controlling you. They give to you. They would never, they would never try and take possession of you. So I even say now, the whole purpose of a teacher is to get rid of disciples, not to gain more. That's why I try and get rid of each one of you. Make you enlightened, free. That's the purpose of a teacher, not to possess, but to liberate. The purpose of the Dhamma is to liberate, to free. But we have to (coughs) somehow find inside this place which we still think there is a self. 
But doing that a little imagination of what it's like to have no self. What it would be like if, if there was nothing there at all. is worthwhile doing because it undermines the fear which stops you getting close to anatta. So often when you start to delve into non-self, there comes a time, a point, where you don't want to go any further, you're afraid. I'm not talking about ordinary fear, I'm talking about fear to your very core. You're challenging all you ever thought about yourself, you're undermining your whole essence of existence. Your whole reason to be is being challenged. By doing that little imagination of what it's like if there was nothing there will give you the courage, give you the faith to go through that fear and find that what you're afraid of is nothing but the most beautiful gift the gift of freedom, of liberation, the gift of ending of things, of work being finished, of finally being free. It's when you can see that non-self. Of course, the other area where the self hangs out is in this doer. <coughs> you really think it's me who does all this? That I gave this talk this evening, that you uh, put the, the mat on the the Dhamma seat, and you poured the water out. No one did this. Even the doer is empty. Completely cause and effect. It's like uh, years and years ago, I gave the simile of the empty bus. It's a beautiful simile. Like you're driving through life in a bus, and you get pleasant experiences and unpleasant experiences. And you think it's your fault. Or you think it's the driver's fault. Why is it that the driver doesn't just drive into pleasant country and stay there a long time? And why does it always drive into unpleasant territory and stay there a long time? You want to find out who is controlling this thing they call me. Why is it I experience so much pain and suffering. You want to find out where the driver is, the driver of these five candles, the driver of you. And after doing a lot of meditation, listening to the Dhamma, finally you come to the driver. Like being in a bus, you get to the driver's seat. And this is where you see the driver's seat is empty. The driverless bus, simile. It shocks you at first, but it gives you so much relief to know there's no one to blame. How many people, when they're suffering, blame somebody? They can't blame another monk, they can't blame the abbot, they can't, they blame the place, and if they don't blame the place, they blame the parents, if they don't blame the parents, they blame the government, if they don't blame the government, they blame the, the weather, they blame some sickness they have. And the last resort, they can't find anyone else to blame, they go and blame themselves. Stupidity. There's no one to blame. You look inside and see it's an empty bus. 
driverless. When you see there's no one to blame, it's anatta. The result of that is you just go into, back into your seat. You just enjoy the journey. It's a driverless bus. What can you do? You just sit there and you go through pleasant experiences. Just pleasant experiences, that's all. You go through painful experiences, just painful experiences, that's all. It's a driverless bus you're on. This whole range retreat, you think that you have driven a course through these last three months. <coughs> that your success or failure, your happiness or suffering is due to you. It's not. It's nature, that's all. You've got no one to blame. You've got no one to praise. Whatever's happened is just that. So stop shouting at the driver. Stop cursing the driver. There's no one there. You're just wasting your voice. Just sit in your seat and cop it sweet. Nice times, have fun. Unpleasant times, have fun. When you've got no one to blame, you might as well just sit there and enjoy the journey. This is a simile of the, the driverless bus. Remember Ajahn Chah once, one of the teachings he gave me personally. I was, he used to come to our monastery in Wat Nana Chat every week because we'd built a sauna one of the first building projects I got involved in. Some of the first bricks I laid were the first sauna. Fortunately it got knocked down, so I can't put a memorial there. And uh, Ajahn Chah used to come. It was great because he would give a talk as well that day. He'd come, he'd give a talk, and we'd fire up the sauna, when it was ready he'd go, and a few monks would go and help him. I would help him sometimes, other times, let other people enjoy that. This time, after giving a very, very nice talk to all the Western monks, he went off to the sauna. This time I let some other monks look after him. And I just went to the back of the sala, sat outside and had a very nice, peaceful meditation. And after coming out of my meditation, I thought, I'll go and check out how I can charge see if I can help him. Walking from the sala, from the hall, to where the sauna was, Ajahn Chah was already finished. He was walking in the opposite direction with a couple of Thai lay people. And he took one look at me and saw I'd been in a deep meditation. He said, Brahma Wangso Tammai, which means Brahma Wangso, why? And I was completely confused and I don't know. <laughs> I said that in Thai. And he said afterwards, if anyone ever asks you that again, the correct answer is, my me arai. There's nothing. That's the answer to the question, why? There's nothing. So if you've been asking that question all your life, why, why, why? I've given you the answer now. It comes straight from Ajahn Chah, from a great enlightened monk. The answer to the question, why is this nothing? Do you understand? So Ajahn Chah told me, do you understand? I said, yes. And he said, no you don't. <laughs> really great, Ajahn Chah. And he was correct. But that always remained with me. 
there's, there's nothing. This is like the emptiness. There is no doer, there is no knower. It's completely empty. To be able to get to that emptiness, just encourage yourself to know that if you do find the emptiness, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. All of the enlightened monks which I've known have always been happy. They haven't regretted finding out there's been nothing there. They haven't sort of said, I wish I had found, found this out. It's liberating. When there's nothing there, there's nothing to hold on to. When there's nothing to hold on to, there's no suffering anymore. It's all of the craving, all of the attachments, all of the pain which arises because of those cravings and attachments, all have their origin in the illusion of self. Awija is the core. That illusion of self creates the sense of me and the sense of mine. And all that I want, all the praise and blame, all of the, <coughs> what they call the asmi mana, I am as good as the next one, I am better, I am worse. How many of you are still suffering because of that, comparing yourselves to somebody else? You don't have to compare yourself to anybody, you're not there. There's no comparison anymore. Once you can give that away, you don't even worry what people think about you. Because there's no one there to think about. How much suffering comes from people worrying about what others think about you? Especially because I'm the teacher here, what I think about you. I don't think anything about you. This is just not there. What I see there is just 14 holes in front of me with the monks. There's one hole as a novice, one hole and none. I don't know how many holes there are, the Anagarikas and visitors. That's why it's called the holy life. <laughs> there's holes, nothing there. So you can see. <laughs> I don't take any responsibility for that joke, there's no one here. Just my conditioning, that's all. Can't do anything about it. So you can see there's just nothing here, it's completely empty, selfless. And that's just so liberating. When there's no one there, there's nothing to grab onto things. There's the other beautiful simile which I like to say that as long as there's a hand you go picking up things. It's what a hand does. If you've got a hand and a nose you'll pick your nose from time to time when no one's looking. Because when there's no hand anymore, when you cut the hand off, then you won't pick things up. It is the self, or rather the illusion of self which picks things up which creates suffering for yourself, which creates the burden of ownership. Those of you who have started renouncing, the more you give up, the more free you feel. You give up your house, you give up your car, you give up your possessions, you give up sex, you give up entertainment, you give up all these things. The more you give up, the more liberated you are. Just like a person just with a big rucksack on their back, carrying all these rocks. They realize they don't have to carry these things. 
And so on the journey up the mountain to Nibbana, they keep throwing things out, throwing all these rocks, throwing out all their possessions, throwing out their body, throwing out their thoughts, throwing out their worries, throwing out their illusion of self. So the last few steps up to the top of the mountain, you throw away the doer, and you throw away the knower. And then there's nothing left. And when there's nothing left, that's when you're free. So <coughs> when we say this is a part of renunciation, we really mean renouncing, giving up everything. We say it's a part of letting go. It's really letting go of everything. Don't keep even a small thing left. You have the courage to do it. It's really worthwhile becoming enlightened. It's to be recommended. Don't you want to become enlightened? Don't you want to be free of all this? Haven't you had enough of samsara? Haven't you had enough of going to work? Haven't you had enough of this body and pain and going to doctors and having kids and worrying about whether you're happy or whether you're sad and all these thoughts which run through your mind and create problems and difficulties, one minute happy, one minute sad. Haven't you had enough of all that? Just meditate. Make the mind still. Look at that thing we call the mind. Open up the lotus and see the most beautiful jewel that there could ever be, nothingness. Nothing better than nothingness. No jewel greater than the Dhamma, the Ratana Sutta. So may you all experience the, the release of knowing there's absolutely nothing there, completely empty, and thereby be happy little monks, nuns, novices, anagarikas, forever after. It's my last little talk for this rains retreat. Has anyone got any comments or questions? Okay.